Jeff Coleman came into the Pennsylvania House of Representatives as the youngest member of the General Assembly when he was elected in the year 2000. A uh, rapidly rising star, not only in Pennsylvania, but in Washington, D.C., Jeff shocked the political establishment when he announced his retirement just four years later in order to save his marriage. Jeff is the author of a short book on civility and manners in the public square and is hoping to improve our public discourse. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President and CEO of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I'm in downtown Harrisburg at Little Lamps Coffee Shop, and uh, joining me is uh, former state representative Jeff Coleman. Uh, Jeff, good to be with you. Thanks for coming on Brews and Views. This is fun. Glad to do it. Well, it's it's funny that here we are. I don't know how many episodes, almost two dozen now. Um, uh, you actually helped me kick this off. Uh, you've designed the logo for Brews and Views. I, obviously, we've had a long relationship, yeah. uh, and maybe we'll get into some of that. So we've it. known each other uh, for quite some time, even before I came to Pennsylvania. Um, so that's our full disclosure here, that uh, we've had a long time, yeah, supporter, long time uh, Doesn't save friend. you from being able to ask tough questions. Yeah, that's so right. That's right. And, and we'll do just that. Uh, uh, Jeff, you you are kind of behind the scenes now. You used to be out mm-hmm. in front of the scenes as a former uh, state representative. And, and I used to uh, joke, uh, and it really wasn't a joke, when you were in office that uh, Jeff Coleman burns the candle not only at both ends, but in the middle. Uh, you you basically were on fire uh, for a long time, and we'll talk about some of that and, <laughs> yeah. and how you ended up uh, still smoldering. Uh, yeah, yeah, still. Yep. <laughs> uh, hopefully not the crash burning, uh-uh. right? Uh, no. Uh, so, but let's start where uh, you know Jeff Coleman yeah. um, comes into this world. Uh, you know, interestingly, on Independence Day, yes, uh, the Fourth of July. Um, you're the only person I know that's born on the 4th of July. <laughs> I know 19... lots of people who died on the 4th of July, right? Uh, a couple presidents. Uh, yeah, yeah, a couple presidents. Uh, but uh, came into this world yeah. 4th of July, uh, 1975. And I wish it was 76. It would make for a yeah, better right? story. Oh, you know? yeah, but, for sure. <laughs> but uh, my dad was in the Navy. My mom and dad uh, had uh, met and married in the Philippines um, a year before, and he was relocated from Subic Bay, which was the big Pacific Naval Base at the time, to Woodby Island Naval Base in uh, Washington State. So I was actually born on the 4th of July in the state of Washington. So I wasn't wasn't born in the Keystone State. Okay. Uh, I, your mom is Filipino? Yes, 100%. Uh, and your dad was uh, in the Navy? A sailor. A sailor? Yeah. Okay. And met your mom... Uh, Met my mom on base. My mom was working on base, and uh, in fact, I guess all of my mom's sisters, most of them, have a similar story. They met their husband. Uh, my mom is uh, one of uh, ten, and the majority of them married Americans. Okay. Uh, so we're a Navy family all the way. Uh huh. Yep. And and how much time? I know you. Uh, your dad was a missionary for yep. a long time, and you've been really around the world uh, mm-hmm. as a missionary kid. Uh, so you ended. You were born in, in uh, Washington. Uh, where did you go from there? And then we'll get to how you end up in Pennsylvania. Well, after the Navy, my mom and dad moved uh, in with my grandparents, paternal grandparents, uh, in Buffalo, New York, where my dad was from. So dad got re-assimilated, then went on to Bible college and seminary, which took him to Florida and then uh, eventually to Philadelphia. So in a way, Philadelphia is probably where... Some of my earliest memories are of my family and growing up, um, five, six, seven, right around there, we were in Philly. Mm-hmm. And I know you've got a, a younger brother. Yes. Uh, and uh, he comes along the way here. And, Fourteen years uh, later. Okay. Yes, yeah. So there's Quite a big the, gap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My parents, I really was thinking I was going to be an only child. And so if all of my quirks and idiosyncrasies probably can be explained by being being an only an child, only child yes. for a long time yeah <laughs> it does explain a lot uh, <laughs> you think? yeah <laughs> and so um you, you you travel the world i know that you spent time yep. in africa and south america southeast anything that sticks out to you uh, during that time that you were out of this i mean most people don't get that experience yeah. right of living abroad particularly as a as a young kid first i don't know that i saw it as an awesome experience growing up because i wasn't Normal, in the sense of being normal, that I you know didn't live in a neighborhood with um, <clears throat> with a, a sports 
uh, tradition. I didn't, you know, have friends that I grew up with or went to school from with kindergarten. So in one sense, I kind of resented that probably growing up. Looking back, though, it was an incredible experience being in places like Peru and Bolivia and Brazil, um, South Korea. Um, the Philippines was the formative time for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spent uh, four years in the Philippines where my mom is from. I lived in Manila, a couple different houses there. So I experienced what it was like to live in a huge city that felt really like it was um, 40, 50 years ago by American standards. Well, and I know it was at that time you had the uh, the people power yeah. revolution. Uh, and, and how did that... Uh, influence you or your thoughts on politics and I mean are you thinking politically at all at this time as a young kid like I like politics I'm attracted to it because I know that Mm -hmm. that was an early age thing for you but uh, where do you start well politics if you live in the Philippines and you uh, you are alive in the Philippines you you really politics is like it's the cultural lifeblood of the country so whatever happens in Manila, whatever happens in the capital, whatever happens at your local, we call them barangays, the, the local borough, really affects everybody. And it's the pageantry of it all. It's a celebrity-driven hmm. uh, political culture where everything is out in the streets. I mean, you've got 80, 90 percent participation in elections. You have um, a system that has been historically rife with corruption. So you determine the success of a political race based on, on uh, how uh, how much uh, less you're willing to take for a bribe, meaning, you know, your street money uh, equals votes, mm-hmm. but the honorable person is actually the one who's willing to take less money and support uh, someone that they actually believe in. And that's an odd way of, uh, of calculating an honest, successful political system. But that's the way it's been. It has changed somewhat. But now the Philippines is back into a really crazy period of, uh, of uh, still democratic rule, but one that is under a quasi-dictatorship. So how did, how did your family end up uh, coming into western Pennsylvania uh, yeah. and Apollo, of all places, uh, for you guys to settle in? Uh, and probably not uh, one that typically had a lot of Filipino Americans uh, uh, <laughs> Western in that Pennsylvania. community. Yes, you yes. Think, yeah. think? <laughs> I've met two or three. Well, uh, I guess the one thing I left out is that in '86, uh, the overthrow of Ferdinand Marcos, uh, who was the 20-year dictator of the Philippines, really going back to when my mom was was in the Philippines, had ruled all this time. And I came out watching the democratic overthrow by the ballot box of a dictator Mm -hmm. and saying politics is awesome because when it works, it really works and people really can take control of their destiny. So anything is possible. Mm -hmm. And that Filipino optimism is probably what they're known for best. You can take everything away from them, including their house and their car, their government. But they're still uh, in love with life and optimistic. So when I went to, to Western Pennsylvania, and the, the journey that took us there was my dad taking the pastorate of a small Presbyterian church. Now, every church in this neck of the woods is generally small, but this was a small of the small, small churches. Small of the small, yeah. okay. And it was right along the railroad a tracks. Micro a micro church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's right, yeah. Um, As opposed to the mega churches that we hear. Okay, got I'm it. All got for it. the micro. Okay, good. And um, right along the railroad tracks in Apollo, in Apollo, Pennsylvania, a town of 2,500 people, had seen, like most western Pen- Pennsylvania towns, bright days at one point when there were steel mills, uh, when there were jobs, when there were movie theaters and barber shops and grocery stores. And by the time we had moved there, there was maybe one of each. But very little of anything. And when is this? Uh, how old are, uh, are you? Let's see. This would have been uh, the late '80s. Okay. Yep. Okay. And uh, so my. So you're a teenager uh, yeah. coming into to Apollo. Yeah. Uh, and not and, and very difficult, I think, to fit in, because again, I didn't grow up in the Steeler Pirate Penguins tradition. <laughs> I was a kid who spoke English, probably more like an adult. Didn't know how to communicate with peers. Didn't know the slang but had this other language, Tagalog, uh, that nobody spoke in Western Pennsylvania, and none of the culture was similar. Uh, but I came to love living in Apollo for a lot of different reasons. How did you guys fit in? I mean, did you, did you sense like this kind of outsider? Uh, do you remember that walking into one of the diners and here your mom looks Filipino. Yeah. Um, you look like a blend of, uh, you know, your mom and your dad, of course. Um, My mom, um, 
was, it's very easy for my mom to pack up and assimilate. I mean, wherever she goes, she builds friendships and relationships. And that is a, a trait from my mother, but that's also a cultural trait mm. for Filipinos, that they can really be transplanted to places like Dubai, places like Malaysia, and places like California and thrive and build businesses. So they are a, they're a hearty, joyful group of people. For me, I think my identity came from literally volunteering for political campaigns, hmm. you know, looking around and saying, I would like to experience what I saw in the Philippines as an American. Is there anything like this here? So I, as a 13-year-old, was volunteering for district attorney races and, you know, friends running for the recorder of wills, and I was trying to bring street Filipino campaign tactics <laughs> to, that I learned and observed, and some of them didn't go over so well. Uh -huh. I, I remember uh, organizing a, uh, a motorcade, for example, which is very big in third world countries, developing nations. <laughs> Not so big in western Pennsylvania. Maybe in the 50s, a sound truck was a big, yeah. was a big thing. But uh, they thought, a few folks thought it was a good idea, and it ended up ticking off probably more, you know, more than it uh, attracted to my candidates. So uh, did you identify yourself as a, a Republican, Democrat? I mean, you're in a, a pretty Democratic yeah. area of the state in the, in the 80s, uh, right? So you still have uh, Democrats are predominantly uh, in control, yep. I suppose, of the county and township mm -hmm. and uh, um, boroughs, all of that out there. Uh, where, where do you start to form well, your, yeah. your uh, political mm -hmm. ideology and identify, I mean, at what point to say, I'm a Republican? Well, I always knew that I was a Republican uh, because of the life issue. Okay. You know, the life issue, if you strip away all the other political issues, it is the dignity and value of every human life. And to me, that begins with the unborn. Um, the Republican Party had been the party that, uh, at least in the 20 years before my arriving on the scene, had been identifying as the pro-life party. The problem that I, I had, and it grew out of living, I think, in western Pennsylvania, but also growing up in a country that lived in poverty, is that I don't, I don't think that Republicans had a message then, and I think very few people have a message now for people who are not aspiring to the upper middle classes, uh, so there isn't a message, say, for working people and working families. Yeah, but even yeah. back in the 1980s, I mean, you could you had lots of pro pro life Democrats certainly yeah. out in Western Pennsylvania. I know that that has kind of been purged from the the Democratic right. Party uh, today. But um, I mean, so I, I guess in terms of why didn't the, I go yeah, that direction? Yeah, why didn't you go to to the direction of the, the Democrats, particularly since they were the uh, dominant party? Uh, That's a great in, question. Yeah. I think it's really because I had when you begin with that issue of life, when I found pro-life Democrats, say like Bob Casey Sr., who yeah. came to Apollo and campaigned in Apollo, I still couldn't understand how they could be, even as a teenager, in a party that nationally was becoming so vehemently, so pronounced on some of these cultural and, and social issues that I didn't identify with. So I, I really didn't believe, until fast-forwarding today, to reading some of what Bob Casey, for example, wrote, thinking these are really intellectual mm -hmm. defenders of life. They weren't just token pro-lifers in a Democratic Party who knew the winds of Western Pennsylvania and said, okay, we're going to go with the Democrats because there's still a working class tradition here. Mm -hmm. But remember, this is also the same time that, that Rick Santorum was on the scene and Melissa Hart and others who were just emerging in Western Pennsylvania who had a blue-collar conservative message. He said, look... Yeah. Democrats belong with us because we're the party who identifies with you on this, but we're also going to care about what kind of health care you have and what kind of jobs you have and the revitalization of communities. And that's very few people other than uh, Rust so, Belt communities where there are Republicans like that. Yeah, so Rick Santorum, Melissa Hart, they're kind of, they're young at this time. They are. Coming into the party. Fresh, and so, new. So to you, that Mike was Terzai. sort of, yeah. yeah. Mike Terzai. I remember yeah. when Mike Terzai... Uh, ran for Congress, and I remember listening to him the night that he lost that nomination against uh, the, the race against Ron Kling, thinking, oh my, this is the guy. Hmm. He is saying things that I wish other Republicans were saying, but it wasn't yet our national message yet. It wasn't as if national Republicans were saying, hey, what works in western Pennsylvania 
uh, and elects people like Rick Santorum could be a successful national formula. Now it's it's virtually the message of the Republican Party. You have a Scott Walker, you have you know Donald Trump adopting some of these yeah. themes that began way back there, really in Western Pennsylvania. So uh, you're you're getting involved uh, locally as yep. a teenager. Uh, why didn't you stick around? You just you had Indiana University right up the road. You decide to go all the way to Virginia. Uh, and go to Liberty University to uh, pursue... Uh, I, had a, uh, yeah. I had a very sophisticated way of picking okay, my I'm college. Sure. Yes. Very yeah. sophisticated. And it was, they sent a videotape, and President uh, George H.W. Bush was the commencement speaker that they led off with. And I said, okay, it's the biggest Republican school in the country that I knew of. I'm going there. <laughs> Sight unseen. Okay. And I went to Liberty. Uh, I mean, that shocks me knowing you. That's <laughs> yeah, how right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, but that was me. And, uh, and I knew Liberty University uh, was a kind of in the heart of the cultural conversation. Uh, I was right when I went there. The people that I found were deeply committed uh, to causes more than party. Of course, Jerry Falwell at the time, the founder of Liberty University, was, was a partisan Republican. Uh -huh. So you had the kind of access back then to internships and opportunities uh, that probably you probably wouldn't have in other academic environments. Uh, so you go there to uh, take over the university, I right? Did my uh, best. Yeah, you did your best. Yeah. I, I know you ran for office, right? And, I did. And in that process... <clears throat> Thank you for bringing this uh, up, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you win your first election? Uh, oh, I did. Okay. I did. Uh, I won for a week. Um, <laughs> I won the student body president race for a week. And uh, my results. Then were you ordered a recount. I, that? Okay. No, well, I didn't order the recount. <laughs> the the, the uh, recount was ordered by the election commission that said I had overspent. Now this is free market Liberty wow. University. So they had spending limits on. They had spending limits. Uh, it was a six hundred dollar spending okay. limit. And the way that I thought we could successfully get our name out around campus was by selling hats with my name on it, Coleman. And they didn't say anything about running for president. Uh -huh. But they were, in fact, designed, to be honest, uh -huh. to influence the election process. And my uh, first place double-digit win was docked dollar for dollar. And I was thrown into second place. The second place winner declined. The third place winner, with a couple hundred votes, became the president. So... And then I ran next yeah, the following yeah, year. Yeah, I was going to say, because I know the story doesn't yeah, end there. I yeah, I wish yeah, it yeah. did. <laughs> I ran again. And um, I won again. And uh, there was a little clause in the, uh, the election code which said that you had to win by 15%. If you didn't win by 15%, you were not going to be allowed to serve. So I go into a runoff. And in the runoff, I, I lose to... Um, can't remember who I lost to, to be honest, but I lost. <laughs> I lost by a percentage point. Okay. So in a head-to-head. -head. In a head-to-head. -head. Okay. Yeah. The these the third place and the second place winner teamed up, and uh, and one of those ironically one of those uh, uh, one of the people I remember being in the race married Ramesh uh, Panuru, uh, of the National Review fame. Uh -huh. So I you know I guess that's I, I, my. Well, and I know in all of this, uh, you uh, had met your far better half, as I like oh to my, refer to time. Rebecca. That's, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, and you guys were kind of this political team, right? I yeah. mean, w w was she running your campaigns? Because uh, I know that that was part of what she did uh, as well. Uh, yeah, Re Rebecca, um, Rebecca knew who she wanted and what she wanted, I think, clearly. And uh, for her, she knew it was love at first sight, and I was the one. I don't know how she saw that through all of the, really, pride and lack of humility and drivenness. Maybe some people thought I was humble, but in a college environment, when you're hyped up on yourself and you're... Yeah, you know, making hats with Coleman you on can, well, yeah, right? <laughs> I can get you one if you'd like, man. But it, um, she saw through all of that and has been, over our lifetime, very patient with watching me develop the character traits that make for a decent husband, I hope. And so uh, you guys meet in college. Yeah. Uh, she's a Florida girl, right? Yes. I mean, I mean, so she's uh, yes. uh, she's not from Western Pennsylvania. I used to have a very yeah. bad joke <laughs> that uh, at town hall meetings in Western Pennsylvania where I would say, uh, I showed her the brochures, you know, of Apollo, <laughs> and, she, and she fell in love with it and I had to move there. And it got a nice laugh from the people who lived in Apollo, but... 
in reality, you know, by the time Rebecca arrived at Apollo, there was a cloud over the whole area. It was economically mm. devastated. Mm -hmm. And people were walking the streets, you know, who used to have jobs, and they were just walking, literally walking up and down the streets and hanging out on street corners because there was nothing there except for the people who stayed to manage the decline. Funeral homes, dentist's office, um, convenience stores, that was it. Mm -hmm. That was all that was mm -hmm. there. The major industry had gone, and the major opportunities had fled to other places. So I, in some ways, saw this as an opportunity for the comeback of this region. I was seeing it. Um, we were only two or three steps away from an economic revival. And she, um, you know, it was very difficult, I'd say. She was a champ. I mean, she was wonderful about... Uh, and very supportive, going to every town hall meeting, and and uh, well, well, but, I, but yeah, this is. I mean, I skip the election. But you get yeah, yeah. You skip the yeah. election here of how yep. you uh, uh, end up coming back to Pennsylvania, uh, and it, it, you've you're represented by someone who has been a long time incumbent, yeah. Democratic mm -hmm. incumbent, um, someone who, as a teenager, I had campaigned against with other Republicans who had run against him. Mm -hmm. And at what point did you say, that's what I want? I want to run for the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, and I'm in. Well, I knew that my freshman year of college. Okay. So that was, the plan was <laughs> to go to college, win student body president, uh, and then come Leverage back. that big victory Leverage that Liberty, to fundraising yeah, yeah, right? and um, grassroots. Illegal and activities. No, that, no that's, okay. man, <laughs> we're on the record here. <laughs> but to come back to... Um, Western Pennsylvania and, and win in a seat so dramatically that um, we could get some things done mm -hmm. that I cared about. And, and you're, so you're running as a 20 what year old at this point? Well, I was 25 okay. uh, when I was running mm -hmm. and uh, running against a gentleman, Tim Pacey, who had um, been there. I, he was elected in a special election, so I think he'd been there 11, 11 and a half years. Okay. And a uh, Vietnam veteran, uh, popular, popular enough that he was, had been reelected over well-funded Republican candidates at least twice. I mean, in the six figures challenges. And this is in the year 2000. And uh, just for context, uh, at this point, you've got people that have been in the legislature, uh, some of them, uh, you know, twice over your age. Yeah. I mean, they've been in office for 40 years. I mean, and that was uh, pretty normal. You had a lot of people who've been there for a very, very long time. And this idea of uh, incumbents losing um, was... Uh, not very uh, common at that Incumbency time. protection was a sophisticated art, and because the positions at that time really had afforded a kind of luxury lifestyle for the people that were there, meaning from cars to tailored suits to, you know, really just um, to, in some cases, you know, access to the state plane, mm -hmm. and it was not a bad job, in fact, for places like uh, especially the more rural areas of Pennsylvania, if you won one of these seats, this was the prize job sure. for life. Sure. So when I arrived, people had been holding their seats for 25, 35, 40 years up. Mm -hmm. And in some cases had had pensions based on the pension multiplier that were going to be well yeah. into the deep, the high, you know, six, six figures. Six figures easily, yes. Yeah. So uh, you come in, decide you're going to run against an incumbent. Yeah. And in fact, um, I don't, maybe I'm wrong, but Jeff, I think that uh, that was the very beginning of what we saw of uh, the reddening of the Blue West, uh, that your election uh, brought back sort of that uh, shoe leather, door-to-door -door uh, something that people hadn't been doing to win sure. elections? You were kind of going old school. Uh, is, that, is that a proper characterization, that that was not how campaigns were being run all across Pennsylvania, everybody knocking down doors? And I know you really hustled that and focused on yeah. just getting in front of people. Well, the door-to-door -door model isn't something that I invented. I think I refreshed it for yeah, right. the area that I was mm -hmm. in. And there were people like John Pippi, there were people like um, like Melissa Hart and others who were beginning to win in these uh, blue areas that were turning red. My district was so blue by by the numbers. I mean, we were almost seventy percent Democrat when I mm -hmm. when I announced that I was running, and it had been kind of a dumping ground for all the blue areas to make some competitive seats. Sam Smith was to the north of me, who mm -hmm. became House Speaker. 
Um, so, yeah, it was probably the beginning of what ended up being a wave um, when Republicans realized that the only way to win these races is by looking people in the eye. And on the areas where you disagree, where you have been typecast as a Republican who is anti-worker, anti-job, anti-everything, anti-public school, mm -hmm. anti-all of it, um, the only way to overcome that was to look them in the eye and say, just ask me questions. What do I really believe? What mm -hmm. do I think? What are my hopes and passions? And it was awesome. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, going door to door was an experience I'll never forget. Um, there are times when I'm driving through neighborhoods, I would like to hop out of a car and just knock on doors because meeting those kinds of people just in their homes, you get a fresh perspective on everything, yeah. including your own life. So uh, you're doing this. Uh, yeah. Does uh, the House Republican Campaign Committee think, oh, that's so nice, Jeff Coleman, that you're doing that. Uh, good luck. And, uh, you know, uh, did they come to your aid or was this all Coleman, you know, Team Coleman? I made my peace uh, with House <laughs> Republicans today. At, the, at that particular yeah. time, as a historical fact, yeah. the Republicans, House Republicans, uh, had an arrangement with the incumbent Democrat. Uh, which essentially said, we will not become involved in your race mm. again mm. at this particular race. Uh, first, it wasn't viewed competitively. Secondly... Yeah, 70-30 is not a competitive no. uh, district. To, uh, um, it had been competitive a decade before under the old uh, redistricting, but it was no longer competitive. And secondly, there was a Republican leader in a neighboring district uh, who was very easy to say, we'll run interference for you. Mm -hmm. And that is my understanding of how it went down. Okay. And um, we have really, looking back at that, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because I wouldn't have been in control of the messaging. And our commitment at the front end was, we're going to run a positive campaign. We're going to be respectful to the opponent. We're going to call him representative. We're going to make sure that he has the kind of dignity that the office uh, affords so that if people were in the position of saying, okay, let's go with a kid, let's go with a young guy, that they wouldn't feel like they were kicking it to the man who they've been voting for for mm -hmm. years and who had gotten them their driver's license renewal and done in their fishing schedules and sent them a birthday card. Mm -hmm. So that that was really important for me. Um, so election night, uh, 2000. Yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously, it's the same as uh, uh, President Bush, uh, George W. Yes. Bush, mm -hmm. uh, is election. Um, I'm sure there was more media attention to uh, what's going on in Apollo than uh, in Washington. Oh, the cameras yeah, were yeah, everywhere. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but can, yeah. do you remember I'm that being, night? Do you remember I remember it, it really well because oh, yeah. I had stood, uh, I was uh, standing out. Um, I mean, what was your expectation going into that night? Did you think, hey, this was great fun, good try, or did you feel like, I think we're going to pull this off? Well, I had never um, won an election well. <laughs> Legitimately, yes, got it. <laughs> I had felt what it felt like to know that people were voting for you uh -huh. in the college context. Uh -huh. So I felt what was happening on the ground, but there wasn't enough, there was no polling data to confirm that. I was just anecdotal. And look, Do you remember how much money you spent uh, in that election? Well, we, we counted everything. Okay to get to a respectable number because uh, so we counted like if someone donated a, a popcorn machine to an event that was an in-kind contribution 42 dollars absolutely oh, yeah, absolutely yeah, right. so you know it was somewhere the hard dollars maybe fifteen thousand dollars okay and uh, to, to scale that republicans in the late 90s and, and late 80s had spent over two hundred fifty thousand dollars in that same seat hmm. To try to win it. <clears throat> so it was David and Goliath. It was every metaphor you want. So that was a, a soaking wet 15000 Yes, dollars. absolutely. Uh, so, so describe yeah. again your, yeah, the, I'm sorry so, I interrupted. No, I stood, uh, so at the polls at election day, I went to the largest precinct um, in Indiana, Pennsylvania, in Shalakta. It was uh, mm -hmm. right at Armstrong Township. Mm -hmm. And I was standing with the representative of the United Mine Workers of America. I mean, it was big time for me. I, it was me. And it was the UMWA representative handing out pencils for my opponent. And uh, you could not read what was happening, although I had a good feeling. But when people go to the polls even then, there is, you know, they'll give you a little tells, but they're not going to tell you yeah, right, in right, most cases. Right. What, was ha what happened at the end of the day was probably the defining moment, which is I saw people who looked like they had just gotten out of bed. This is 2000. 
the Gore turnout machine was working hard mm. in targeted areas, and you knew that people who were going on shift work were coming to vote, but they'd just been woken up by the United Mine Workers or the United Steel Workers or other labor unions to say, you've got to get to the polls. And as a part of that, to vote for Al Gore. Mm -hmm. Part of that was me then going, please split your ticket. I'm Jeff Coleman. I'm, not, I'm running, you know. And to say that at the end, I knew that many of those people had not thought about the down-ballot race mm -hmm. for state representative. So every one of our team members was conditioned to say, hey, if you're a Democrat, split your ticket. And I knew what we were up against. So, and did Gore end up winning uh, your district? Do you remember? Boy, I, can't but they, rem but I really split. can't remember. And I think that that's something that we I have seen in Pennsylvania, that uh, Pennsylvania voters are willing to split their tickets. Oh, yeah. They'll, they'll, uh, uh, they may go with one party at the state level, but they'll definitely... It's very you know, fickle. Mm -hmm, it can be. Ross Perot, yeah. other figures have come through in places like Western Pennsylvania, and depending on the mood of the moment, are willing to take off the jacket, the Republican jacket, the Democrat jacket, and, and move. So you end up winning. You come into office. Well, I found uh, out, by yeah, the way, we won yeah. at about two in the morning and I remember that experience going outside of my little campaign headquarters in Ford City which uh, was the heart of uh, labor heart it was the biggest democratic community in my district that's where we planted our flag um, and it was a, a little uh, little storefront and we my dad and I were walking outside and I said you know I don't know what what this was all about um, but I know we were supposed to do it, and he and he really was. It was fifty-fifty at midnight, hmm. Hmm. eleven o'clock midnight. Uh, the only election results we were getting, everything was saying we were virtually tied, and it wasn't until uh, I think about two in the morning that we heard that I, I had won by fifty-two percent, and that's it was not until a few hours later that we were starting to get calls, congratulatory calls from Harrisburg saying, "You're you a member it. of the Republican you Caucus." You did it. Yeah. Amazing. So you end up coming into Harrisburg yeah. uh, in January of 2001. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, probably pretty quickly uh, because we ended up, I think we met in 2001 during your first uh, right. term while I was still in, in uh, Michigan mm -hmm. at that time. Um, but uh, very early on, I think that the Bush administration reached out to you and sucked you into some of giving sure. your Filipino-American ties and, and background, yeah. which is where my reference at the beginning of this of how you were burning the candle not only mm -hmm. on both ends but in the middle, uh, because I know you were all over, uh, not just Pennsylvania, but uh, I was going in Miami, around, I was yeah. in Florida, you know, I was in, uh, in San Diego, San Francisco, I was... You know, and the reason being is I think Republicans, as I alluded to earlier, hadn't done a, a very good job at all of reaching out to groups like Asian Americans, mm -hmm. uh, certainly not African Americans, or a whole segments of the population that we had written off as a party. And so if you had someone who had credibility or access or an ethnic heritage and you were tied to it and you were willing to travel... And but did you young. feel like you were a token then? I mean, that you were being used by the party? No, because to the be Filipino yeah. community embraced me, I mean, with a big hug. Uh -huh. I mean, they right away, uh, which meant when I was, uh, when Rebecca and I got married the year after, the Philippine government invited us to come over really as a PR tour. And we did uh, 10 days in the Philippines, courtesy of the government. The uh, president held a, a dinner in our honor at the, at the palace. Uh, we had motorcades and police sirens and all that. So it was... It was a very loud way to be a state representative from uh, from, from uh, Apollo, from Pensa, Apollo, Pennsylvania, yeah. really. And it was probably looking back, it's certainly not the way that I recommend anybody doing it. Um, and there were other causes that I cared a lot about, conservative causes that I was speaking out on too. So, you know, I would um, the burning the candle looked like someone picking me up from my house at six in the morning, seven in the morning and not getting home until 10 or 11 at night till the last event was done, holding town hall meetings as many weekends as we could, packing them out, um, and then making sure we were in every, uh, every classroom um, every year, mm -hmm. not just the school, but to visit the school, hold assemblies, and then visit every teacher in every classroom. Uh, in addition to the other schedule, and I, that just felt, it felt normal to me, it felt exciting. But it was devastating on our marriage. It was devastating on any kind of, people call it you know, work-life balance yeah. today. There was none of that. 
Yeah, so uh, you're very yeah. quickly labeled as this rising star within yep. the Republican Party. I think people are taking notice. One, you knock off a longtime mm-hmm. incumbent uh, out west. We see this reddening of, of western Pennsylvania. Jeff Coleman's part of that. I think at the time you were the youngest uh, member of uh, the entire uh, General Dave Assembly. Reed. It was, it was yeah. um, Dave and I. Yes, yeah, so, that Dave came in after you. Right. I think that was also part of right. saying, hey, you— uh, then started to uh, have so a ripple effect. This. That's it. That's yep. right. And so um, you shocked everybody uh, in two th- early 2004 that you're not going to run for re-election. Yes. Uh, you're not running for anything. Yeah. Uh, what happened? Uh, why'd you put the brakes on this rising star? Well, my marriage was crashing, and in two years into it, there was virtually nothing left. I mean, and that. And I'll, anyone who asks, I'm happy to share that story because I know that many marriages and many couples are going through the same things. There are triggering events, there are circumstances, there are people that make it uh, complicated to make, it, uh, make the story so simple. But if I were to add it all up, it's that I was doing a very good job of being a state house member. I was being a really poor job of, under, of even trying to understand what it meant to be committed to somebody. Mm-hmm. So life was going in one direction uh, from a career standpoint, and the rest of it was crashing. And to manage that became impossible. Well, and I ask you that because yeah. I, kn- I know your story, yeah. uh, but, and I know that uh, you want to share that so that yeah. others that make tough decisions, I mean, because uh, a lot of folks in Harrisburg uh, choose the career over their marriages and we know that there are lots of marriages in Harrisburg that have been dashed on the rocks of uh, aspirations yeah. of running for office holding on to office and uh, and if they're not utterly destroyed uh, they're certainly uh, living as uh, married singles or something and but you made that decision and I mean it's pretty amazing today when I think about it and your four young kids who uh, we had over for a pool party and yep. I mean that that uh, very easily could have uh, it's not a total come miracle. Yeah. I'm a walking yeah. miracle, and um, I didn't know. First of all, when I made that announcement that I wasn't going into uh, going to run for re-election, my designs were to run for Congress or lieutenant governor. I mean, that's Someday, just where yeah. I was mm-hmm. headed, right? I, and but I wasn't going to wait either. Yeah. I didn't want to wait. It was already getting boring for me. I mean, we've done all of it. We've helped people run for office. We've done all the speeches. We've done all the things that you can do. And if you're, if you're not sitting there waiting and tracking specific policy pieces to move, you're trying to set a tone, which is kind of what I tried to do. And I wasn't focused on HB, you know, you fill in the blank. Right, right. I was focused on trying to make the Republican Party different, setting a different tone for people who ran for office. But if you're not focused on that, you're going to get bored pretty quickly. If you're not completely dedicated to waiting the 10 years to get your bill done, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, if my advice to people now who are looking for political office, looking to political offices, number one, ask where you are at in life. You know, is this the right season of your life to run for office? Where are your kids? Are, well, what happens when you are gone Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and maybe Thursday and you've got a committee hearing Friday and you're going to do Boy Scout ceremonies on Sunday afternoon after church, I mean, tell me how you're going to be a dad mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. Secondly, what is, your, what is your plan? You know, what is your plan? You've got a plan to run for re-election. What is your plan to save your marriage before it crashes and to protect your family? How do you do that? And... I know one or two people up there who have given really sound advice on how they have done it, but most people still, um, the novelty of running for office is a pretty big deal, mm-hmm. but then you realize your family no longer has privacy. Every trip to the gym, every time you pump gas, every time you walk down the street, you are now your family now become public figures, and in this environment, imagine. Oh, yeah. Protests sure. can be on your front lawn where you eat dinner. That's what this is. Yeah. Well, and, and that's a good segue, Jeff. I, I know after you left office, you continue to advocate for the things that you care about uh, through Churchill Strategies, the mm-hmm. firm that you formed and have even now expanded into New Jersey. And mm-hmm. you're able to pick and choose uh, the, the issues and, and um, causes uh, yeah. that are of interest to you. Uh, but one of the things that uh, I think you've brought into the discussion and really we're ahead of uh, some of the things that we're seeing today is the issue of uh, respect 
uh, civility, uh, manners in public discourse. Uh, and uh, while you're doing your day job, you also right. uh, wrote a book, uh, a good book called uh, With All Due Respect, uh, Recovering the Manners and Civility of Political uh, Combat. Um, give the, you know, the, the uh, yeah. cliff notes of that. Now I talk about, you know, how we're doing today. I mean, because mm-hmm. boy, it sure seems we've, uh, uh, everybody's kind of ratcheted up of we're, we're tossing manners and civility out the window entirely. Well, to have manners and combat in the same title is a weird thing, right, right. I think, for people, right? Well, it's um, like a gentleman's duel, I guess, A right? gentleman's yeah. duel, yeah. right? The reason I put the word combat in there, because I don't want people to think that setting aside, uh, creating a space for civil discourse and discussion means disarming. Mm-hmm. Meaning that being polite, having rules to the discussion, what we have in the House of Representatives or any other legislative body, which is you have to call her gentle lady or yeah. gentleman, mm-hmm. or you have to ask the speaker for recognition to speak on the floor, or you have to, you have to, to walk in and wear a, a jacket or a tie or something that says that you respect the position that you hold and the environment where you're having this discussion. If we burn down the public square, meaning the places that we can have discussions and actually say, pause, now you have to listen to the other side. They have the floor. But instead, having simultaneous discussions only to the people in your tribe or your silo or whatever metaphor Mm -hmm. you want to use, there is nothing of, of value or good that's going to happen. And everything you care about and everything I care about will not happen because we haven't found a place to say, okay, I'll give you 20% mm-hmm. and I'll take 80 mm-hmm. or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I want to move the ball forward on something I care about. So uh, what, what caused you to write this book? Well, the election. Well, yeah, yeah, so the election. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I was, I was like everybody else. I love uh, the presidential campaign process. Mm-hmm. If you're in politics, it is the Super Bowl, right? It is right. the place where you get to see the very best players do their thing on the national stage. So introducing my, my, uh, my oldest, who's now 12, to the political process was exciting for me. I wanted her to see debates. I wanted Anna to see what it was like. I had to send my 12-year-old to bed when these debates. Well, that's so, what I did. I, yeah. Right? I mean, that's it a, became unbelievable. Yep. That's, that's what happened in our home is that you could go so far and then you said, no, 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 wait, this is not, I don't want you to remember this. Right. We'll come back to it in four years. Sadly, yeah. it really looks like four years, um, the, the next presidential election is going to be a repeat, but worse. Yeah. Than, than what we saw a few years ago. That instead of uh, folks uh, taking the high road, uh, we're taking the lower road. We keep uh, kind of ratcheting it downward, on, it, it seems. Um, how, so how do we restore that, Jeff? What, what I mean, is this going to just um, uh, devolve into where we will end up throwing away the rules on the, the floor of the house, where it just, uh, we bring the well, street Well, why would we in? maintain them, yeah. right? Why would we yeah. maintain arcane rules that add all this artificial language because the argument would go, we could have a much better discussion just duking it out mm-hmm. online going back and forth. Why do we have to have arguments face to face? Why do we even have to have a leg? I've heard arguments being made that said a legislature shouldn't even, doesn't even need to be in a building where people drive to. We could do it all virtually online. Why? Why is being in a space with somebody and seeing someone's body language important to you. Why? Because space and distance and time and delays, it's like from here to the space station, creates all kinds of reverb and pauses that you do not get when you're meeting someone face to face and you can see that person is welling up. That person is offended. I hurt them. I went, I crossed the line. Hey, sorry, can I walk that back? Those are the things that you see when you are face-to-face with people. How do you change it? it? It isn't going to be, for as simple as this might sound, we just need to elect a national leader who is civil yeah, and polite right, and respectful. Right. It, it isn't going to do it. Yeah. It's not, it is not big enough. Changing the president, changing a governor, changing a senator isn't going to be enough. It has to really begin street to street like all politics does every all elections are decided locally it is what do i do with the neighbors across the street when i am aware that the neighbor across the street has lost the most important person to them 
and they are now all alone. Yeah. If Republi- but they're Democrats. If I'm a Republican and I don't walk across with food, I am, I am really a mess. Yeah. And honestly, that is what's happening in our neighborhoods. And, and do you, would you say that, um, I mean, I'm pretty amazed sometimes what uh, people will say, even with their name on it, on Facebook, uh, that yeah. I know they would not say if we were sitting at a table across from one yeah. another. Um, and honestly, I've had to just back off uh, from yep. a lot of Facebook discussion because I don't find it very productive. Right. Uh, in fact, I would probably delete my account if I could. Um, uh, and maybe I will one of these days because I don't think that that has helped to elevate any discourse. Sure, we interact with more people, but I think it is uh, an incivil way uh, for us to be interacting, and it's contributed to a lot of what I think is the heated rhetoric that I'm, I hear from elected officials. Right. They don't say this on the House floor, uh, but when I see a House uh, member uh, using his Facebook post uh, saying, my welcome to Vice President Pence with him giving the middle finger right. uh, and using that publicly, I mean, that to me is uh, really degrading uh, any real opportunity for civil discourse. Um, and that's where we seem to be at today. But it's a, it's a chain of events, right? The middle finger leads then to the um, president's press secretary getting kicked out of the restaurant, which leads to, you know, Maxine Waters saying, let's take it to them everywhere they are, which leads to the, the Republican back and forth, back you know, and forth. tweeting right. something, uh, you know. And here's, yeah. the, here's the dirty secret about all of it, is that the skilled political practitioners are using this moment for their own benefit because they know the power of their own audience. Yeah. So they know, for example, that the middle finger isn't going to persuade anybody on the right. In fact, they know that that is only designed to provoke and in the crass sense, raise five and 10 and $25 contributions. Ms. Huckabee, with respect to what happened with her in the restaurant, a sad moment, yes. But she knew exactly what was happening when she allowed that information to be placed online for all of us to debate. Yeah, sure. It was a rallying point. So would you say that, Jeff, ultimately just comes down to us as individuals? Yes. That we have to commit ourselves to uh, not entering or engaging in something that deteriorates, uh, that degrades the conversation. And at the end of the day, that's the only thing that we can control. Right is how you and I engage in the public, uh, you know, domain, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or uh, out on the streets. And, and we're engaging not, here's folks. something to remember: we're not we're not always going to get it right. Yeah, there are going to be instances where we just get it wrong. It's though the getting it wrong where we have an opportunity yeah. to say, "Look, I was wrong." And you know what the wrong moment does? Yeah. Yeah. It creates a relationship with somebody who says, "You know what? Yeah. We start." Yeah. I'll give you an example. Um, Bob Vanderplatz, who is a leader of a really conservative pro-family group in Iowa, goes on to the air with the leader of uh, One Iowa, which was the, the leading LGBT group in, in, uh, in Iowa. Mm-hmm. They go on to debate. Afterwards, they exchange emails. Somehow, somewhere, one of the, the, the individuals decides, would you like to go out for coffee? They build this relationship. Neither of them changes their position on what is the definition of marriage or mm-hmm. what rights should be afforded mm-hmm. to what groups, right? But what, what happened is this friendship uh, developed that when the leader, this last two weeks ago, of the LGBT group passed away, it was Bob Vanderplatz, the leader of the pro-family group who delivers the eulogy at her mm. funeral because mm. you know what he says i loved her mm-hmm. i loved her for who she was not anything else that that yeah. is a, an example that but that has to happen everywhere yeah. yeah and we and it's it's pursuing those relationships and i think uh we, it used to be that we were compelled to them just because yeah. of because of the lack of uh um some of the technologies that we have today that right. uh, allow us to separate and pull apart so we have to be very intentional I think, and part of Brews and Views is trying to be intentional yep. about that with some of the folks that I sit down with and, and meet with who I don't agree with on a lot, but uh, being able to say, look, I think you might be wrong. That doesn't mean you're evil. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that's been a problem of both the right, far right and far mm-hmm. left is that uh, they say you're evil 
uh, you're not only wrong, but you're evil, and therefore you should not be able to uh, hold your viewpoint or right. your opinion. And that's been very dangerous for uh, our totally Republican, agree. you know, small R uh, form of, of government. Um, so my, my hope is that, you know, things like that you're doing with your book and how you engage uh, uh, in the political uh, arena, uh, the public uh, square, uh, that we can bring back some of that, because I think that that's just utterly important, even going back to, you know, how you had a democratic revolution uh, in the Philippines, right? It wasn't with guns that displaced a, uh, a dictator, but it was with the vote. And, uh, of course, we don't ever want to lose that uh, here in America. Yeah, it, it takes people taking the long view of all of this, too, is that uh, I might be able to score in the 24-hour news cycle. I might be able to get an, an article out of this. I might be able to get a, a hefty number yeah. of retweets and yeah, reposts right. on this. But I have to say, I'm here. What am I doing to the for the environment? Yeah. Right. What is what is the equivalent of what we do with recycling and you know tending our stewardship of the environment? Applying that to the political process and saying, you know, my little act of aggression. My little act of undermining someone who, who is legitimately made and designed in the image of God, my undercutting them actually destroys the environment, the ecosystem in which we conduct political discussions. That's how we have to begin to view all of this, I think. Well, uh, Jeff Coleman, thanks for joining me here on Brews and Views, and I hope that uh, we're contributing to uh, an elevated discourse, encouraging all of, all of us uh, to say, how can I... Uh, improve the dialogue that's going on, reaching across the aisle, if you will. And uh, um, I think uh, restore uh, and reclaim what has made America just uh, an incredible place for politics, for governance. Yeah, uh, I so I appreciate your joining me here. Thank you, my friend. Glad to do it. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E.